Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm Josh Downs. In today's episode, we're looking at episode 37, 1 Corinthians chapters 14 through 16, with the theme, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. I recently had the opportunity, you guys, to teach my daughter to drive. For those parents that have had that amazing opportunity, you can also attest that it is also a terrifying opportunity and experience, wasn't it? It was for her as well. And young people, when you have the opportunity, if you have not yet taken it, you will know exactly what I mean when you do. There's a reason why I think teenagers, by and large, are delaying getting their license a little bit more as time goes on because, well, we are living in a world that is becoming more and more conditioned to fear, to the unknown, to confusion. That's one of the reasons I love this section so much is because it helps us remember that whenever there's chaos or it feels like there's chaos, it's never chaos to God. And I think that is one of the most comforting truths and principles and doctrines that I know has helped me in my life when I've gone through hard and difficult things and terrifying things like maybe learning how to drive. (laughs) See, in taking my daughter through that experience, not only was it important for me to teach her about how to drive, but also how to help her to feel safe enough to do it. And it took time, it took patience, and it took a lot of practice and a lot of work, but eventually she got it. And she was able to hold up her license with with pride and excitement at the new possibilities that were now in front of her in being able to drive a car. Well, as I looked over this lesson this week, it just reminded me in many ways of that experience I had with my daughter and how that is, in a lot of ways, how God works with us and how he is with us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to grow and develop new talents and skills, even in the scary world that we exist and live in. And he wants you, specifically, young people, to do well in school and in your life, to make new friends, to have a great school year, to be happy. Yet again, life can be a little scary. And there will be times and places and circumstances where you and I just won't know what to do, where we will be confused, maybe even a little afraid of what's in front of us. And my hope is as we go through these chapters this week and look at a couple key principles that you will see different things that can help you in those situations. That can help you to see that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And some of the things that he has put in place, one thing in particular that we'll get to in just a moment that you'll see woven through each of the principles this week and hopefully throughout all these chapters that has been designed to really help us to find peace and to find answers, to find solutions, to find strength in a very difficult and challenging world uh, like the one we live in. Now, first of all, the background to these chapters is as follows. Because the church and its doctrines were relatively new in Corinth, it's understandable that Corinthian saints encountered confusion. Paul had previously taught them the fundamental truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. But some members soon began teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. 
Paul implored them to keep in memory the truths that they had been taught. And then the idea is presented that when we encounter conflicting opinions about gospel truths, it is good to remember that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Listening to the Lord's appointed servants and holding to the simple truths they repeatedly teach can help us to find peace and stand fast in the faith. Which brings me to the first principle. I just want to explore a little bit more in detail and a little bit more in depth. And that is in chapter 14, verse 33. And I want you to mark this verse. It is the theme for this week's study, which is just simply this. As Paul reminds both the saints in Corinth and all the saints throughout the world, including us of our day and time, in verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. I want to share just a few thoughts about this particular principle because I know how applicable it can be and will be in each of your lives for those of you, especially that are listening. I think one of the most difficult things about living in mortality and living on this earth and planet is having to face just the unknown and uncertainty in general. There's always fear associated with both of those things. Anytime there is the unknown, we worry about how will things go? How will they turn out? Will everything be okay? And what if it isn't okay? What if things don't turn out the way that we want them to? What then? Well, a big part of life is learning to let go of that fear and replace it instead with faith and trust in the very thing that Paul is teaching here, that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Remember, we won't always have the answers. We won't always be able to understand fully, and we're not always meant to. If the Book of Mormon was meant to be proven, we would still have the gold plates. And then it would be easy to show that it was all true. But that's not God's plan right now. He wants us to trust Him and to learn to act in faith. Which means facing at times the unknown and uncertainty and maybe having doubts at times. I always remember one quote from a conference I heard a long time ago. that just simply was encouraging us to doubt our doubts before we doubt our faith. That if we have questions which are okay to have and we just don't have the answers, feel free to put them back up on the shelf until the answers come and continue to hold on to those truths that you do know and don't let those questions overpower them and cause you to lose faith in the process. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Everything he does is meant to lead us to better places, to live better and be better. Both the Bible and the Book of Mormon record multiple journeys where God takes his people from the places they were and leads them through the unknown, often in wilderness-type situations and settings, places that are filled with the unknown and uncertainty and fear and lead them to a better place, to a promised land. But it always required them learning to let go of what they didn't know, what they couldn't see, and trust that God would come through for them that there were things that he did know and things that he could see that they didn't. And that he's actually not the author of confusion, but of peace. In your own life, there will be times where you'll not know what lies ahead of you. And that can be a scary thing for a teenager, for anyone for that matter, but especially for a teenager. There'll be times where you'll face great uncertainty and of course, fear that's always associated with it. But it's in these moments where you and I 
like those in the scriptures, get to choose for ourselves whether we trust in God and his plan or whether we doubt it. If something is in a state of confusion, I think it could be said that it is also in a state of chaos. While if something is in a state of peace, I think it could also be said that it is in a state of order, that things are going as they were designed and therefore we can experience peace in it. This really is at the core and at the heart of what God does. He takes chaos and he brings it into order. Just look at the universe as an example. He took the raw elements that were disorganized and he organized them. In other words, he took chaos and put it into order. And he does this not only in the creation of life, but in the way that life is lived. If you and I will allow him to, if we will follow him as he invites us to so often, he will help turn chaos in our life into order. In fact, young people, I think that this is one of the great truths that we are meant to learn, and the earlier we can learn it, the better. This really is one of the fundamental things that we're here to learn and to do ourselves, to learn the process of turning chaos into order. And I want you to think about this. God has in mind to give you everything that he has and everything that he is. Basically then, this life is meant to help us to learn how to become like him, to be trained to become like him. And as God's in training, I want you to think about just how much of life in our own small spheres there is that we have opportunities to take chaos and turn it into order, to not become an author of confusion ourselves, but an author of peace like he is. These opportunities start small and they're all around us. In fact, each and every day there are multiple opportunities that we have to take something that is in chaos and bring it into order or to put it in order. You want an example? <laughs> I'll give you one, and it's a little bit of a hard one, but you have it every single morning. It's the very first thing that you have the opportunity to do in terms of taking something that's in chaos and putting it into order. Can you guess what that is? I'll give you a hint. You sleep in it every night. <laughs> if you said making your bed, yes, that is it. Think about it. That's the very first opportunity you have each and every day to take something that's in chaos from your sleep and put it into a state of order to make it. In fact, this is such a significant and important task that even a Navy general wrote an entire book based on his experience in the military, just titled, Make Your Bed, indicating and teaching that concept and lesson that the most important thing you can do that is the very first task of the day, which is just to make your bed because it will set the tone for the rest of the day and basically help you bring the rest of the day into order as well. So the next time you have an opportunity to make your bed, which will be tomorrow, or maybe still today by the time you get home from school, if you are just listening to this, I want you to think about this, that every time you make your bed, you are basically taking chaos and putting it in order. Every time you clean your room, you are taking chaos and putting it in order. Every time you clear your junk drawer, your sock drawer, chaos to order. Your closet, chaos to order. The trick is to learn and recognize how much better order feels than does chaos. Now, I know that some of you will be very interested in trying to learn to find peace in chaos instead of order by maybe never cleaning your room or making your bed or other things. That is very common for teenagers to do. But I am telling you, you will never feel as confident 
as content and as satisfied living in chaos as you will order simply because you are God's child first and foremost. You have his DNA in you. And in chaos, there is always great confusion, fear, and dissatisfaction. In order, there is always great satisfaction and peace. And so right now you're learning how to put things into order in the universe one day by first learning how to bring order to your sock drawer, and to your room, and to your bed. Even your schoolwork can fall into this category. It's a part of bringing order to your life through learning how to discipline yourself and create opportunities for additional learning in the future and a career that will eventually lead to greater things and greater order in your life. Now, one of the keys in this education that we're receiving is to understand that when things fall apart, which they will, because we live in a world of chaos, there's opposition in all things. And there is a natural inclination and almost a gravity towards chaos. And so things will at times fall apart. But the key again is for us to learn to not fall apart ourselves, to keep order in us when things are in disorder around us. And I know that it can be incredibly frustrating when things don't go as planned or the way that you want them to. But try to look at these experiences as just another opportunity to put things back in order, maybe in a different way. I remember going on a date, one of the very first that I went on back when I was your age, and we went to a mall that was downtown Salt Lake to go to dinner, and we were going to park in this underground parking structure that was underneath the mall, and we decided to take my buddy's van, and it was a large van. It was was really big, kind of a, a big party van. We had a bunch of us in it, and I remember making our way to the underground parking. In order to go down there, you had to go down this this ramp. And at the the top of the the ramp area, there was a sign that kind of hung from the ceiling indicating how how many feet tall the the parking structure was just to make sure that no cars that were too big came under and, and got stuck. Well, we thought we'd be fine until going under that sign, we heard a big clang indicating that we had hit that sign which also meant that our van was too tall or too big to really fit in that underground parking structure. Well, it was a very busy time. Uh, it was the weekend. People were coming from all over. There were a lot of cars trying to get into the parking, and there we were stuck. We had all these great plans. We had an idea of exactly how the night wanted to go. This was important to me. This was my first day. So there was a lot of pressure to impress the girl that I was with, all the girls that we were with. And in an instant, the order that we had worked so hard to create fell into chaos. Now, we had a choice at that point in time, especially as the police officer started to show up and begin to back cars out one at a time, trying to make room for us to back out so that everyone else could come in. It could have been incredibly embarrassing. In fact, it was at first. But one of the things that we had learned to do early on as teenagers, and I hope that you're learning this as well, is to roll with the punches, to make light of the situations that sometimes you find yourself in and to laugh a little bit. And that's exactly what we did. As we backed the van up to a round of cheers and applause from all the bystanders that had stopped to see what was going on and why all these policemen were around trying to back up cars, We could do nothing but laugh ourselves and recognize that this chaos also created another opportunity, a memory that we would always have the rest of our life. 
And so we chose to simply just laugh at it and recognize that the night could still go on and would, could still be fun. We had to adjust a little bit from our regular plans and recognize we simply had another opportunity to take something that was in chaos and put it into order. It was just another reminder that I've had multiple times throughout my life that you can have all the best plans in the world, but that doesn't mean that they're going to go according to plan. And therefore, when things fall apart, which they eventually will at some point, there really is nothing that we can create that will stay in a state of perpetual order. There will always be chaos that will be a part of those experiences. But when they happen and when they come, we can begin to practice keeping order in ourselves, even though there may be disorder around us by choosing faith over fear. And this is an education that will really take a lifetime to learn. But young people, you can start now by trying to remember as often as you can Paul's simple counsel that when you find yourself in chaos, confusion, uncertainty, and always fear, that God is not the author of confusion and he has not given us the spirit of fear. And together you both have the power to work with whatever you have been given and whatever you have and whatever circumstances you might be in whatever raw materials might be available and put them in order and therefore experience the peace that God intends for us to have in our lives. Now just a couple key questions for you to consider as it relates to this. Number one, how have you experienced God giving answers and insight into confusing situations that you've been in? Number two, how have you seen him do that with others? Another one might be, how has the gospel brought clarity to you and to your life? Who is the author of confusion? And who is it that wants us to feel confused and to experience fear as a result of it? Can you feel the difference between when there is chaos around you and when there is order? And what does the difference feel like? More of an applicational question might be something along the lines of, as you've thought of this, what is something that came to mind that you feel you need to bring into greater order in your life? When has chaos created confusion and fear in you? Maybe something also worth considering is, what is a scripture that you have come to rely on that maybe is a personal favorite that has brought you peace in difficult and confusing times? I love having verses like that, that I can just kind of hold on to and remind myself that everything will be okay. Maybe the last question might be, how is it helpful to you in your life to know and understand that God is not the author of confusion? And therefore, what can you do to trust him a little more when you can't see what you need to see or what you want to see? Now, principle two, this one I want to start with just sharing a little story, a little experience that I had uh, some time ago when my daughters uh, were much younger. They used to sleep in a room that was just adjacent to the one that uh, my wife and I were in. And I remember one night in particular, have you ever had that feeling that somebody was just watching you, just staring at you, just kind of that unsettling feeling like, like, yeah, you're being watched. I remember the middle of the night kind of waking up to that feeling. Like I couldn't shake it and I didn't know why. It eventually got to me so much that I turned over, 
prepared to get out of my bed and just kind of walk around the room a little bit, make sure everything was okay. And I was completely shocked and terrified at the same time to see my youngest daughter, Michaela, just standing there in the dark, staring at me. (laughs) I was so startled. I just about jumped right out of my bed. I said, Michaela, what are you doing? That's what she said. Dad, I couldn't sleep. I was scared. So I wanted to come in here and and can I sleep with you dad in your bed (laughs) to which I said of course sweetheart I picked her up and and put her over in between her mom and I and she just fell right asleep took me a little bit longer but hey she was able to get right to sleep that was the most important thing as I contemplated that experience I came to recognize that I think in a lot of ways that's how God is with us He knew that there would be times where we also would get scared, that we'd be afraid, things would get dark, and we would want desperately to come home. But he knew that we couldn't while we were here on earth. We couldn't rush home to him. We couldn't go stand by his bed and ask him to to help us and to comfort us when we're going through hard things. So understanding that we couldn't go home to him just yet, I think that's one of the reasons that he decided to build homes here. Homes referred to as temples, places where we could go and meet with them, places where we could get help, we can get instruction, we could take our problems to them and just tell them, Dad, this is hard. I'm scared. It's dark. I can't sleep and I need help. And he could be there to comfort us and tell us that everything was going to be okay. Principle number two has everything to do with that story and with temples in chapter 15 i want you to turn there paul alludes to several doctrines as it relates to the temple and as it relates to the plan of salvation and honestly one of the reasons i love the temple so much is because of just how powerfully the plan of salvation is taught in it in chapter 15 verses 19 through 22 Paul reminds the saints in Corinth of the doctrine of the resurrection. As we alluded to in the beginning, there were some questions that were beginning to come up among the saints as to whether there would be a resurrection. And a part of that was from some of the cultural beliefs that were most likely a part of the members' lives prior to them joining the church. It really took a while for the apostles to kind of burn some of those old beliefs and traditions out of their system. And in verses 19 through 22, Paul is attempting to do just that and to set things straight and correct. In verse 19, he he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. In other words, if the only hope that we have in Christ can take place and does take place in this life, then that's a pretty miserable state to be in because there is no hope of anything after this life. And I want you to think about how discouraging that would be to to believe in that, to believe that there is no resurrection, no real life after death. And Paul is trying to remind the saints, that is not what we believe. And therefore, we have great reasons to be happy and, and be joyful. In verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That is one of the fundamental doctrines that I I think we take for granted as members of the church. 
I want you to just pause for a moment and think about how wonderful that doctrine is and how grateful we should all be that we have it. Some of the greatest fear that we experience in mortality is the fear of the unknown from what comes after life. And yet God has, in his infinite wisdom, given us answers and doctrines that we can hold on to to help us face those times of uncertainty where we approach death or where we have loved ones that pass on to the other side and wonder what might be happening to them or where did they go or will we ever see them again. I love the doctrine of the resurrection, not only for those reasons, but also it means I won't have to worry about ever going to the dentist again. I look forward to that with such pleasure <laughs> to never have to worry about getting a filling, a root canal, a crown, having the, the pain associated with getting my mouth numbed, all those kinds of things. I was just there this past week, which is probably why it's at the forefront of the things I'm most looking forward to not experiencing as a part of the resurrection. But in teaching that doctrine, Paul then begins to move towards a very pivotal, very important, significant verse that I want every single one of you to mark. And it's in verse 29, speaking of the resurrection and trying to give a little bit more understanding um, and clarity that there is a resurrection. He says this in verse 29, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? He is using baptism for the dead to help further solidify the doctrine of the resurrection. Which means, young people, apparently, according to verse 29, what were they practicing back then in the church? What were they practicing back then in Christ's day? Baptism for the dead. This will be one of your key missionary scriptures that you will need to help others understand that this doctrine that is so foreign and so new to them when they're taught about baptism for the dead and the work that goes on in temples is not new and it's not foreign. It's right there in the Bible that there has been baptism in the past for the dead, which is why we do it today. It's always been a part of Christ's church and his faith in temples, baptism for the dead. And then turn the page and jump a few verses down. Here's a few more missionary verses for you. When you teach about the three de degrees of glory and the different kingdoms, which will be very unfamiliar to all those that you teach. The majority of the world has been taught there's heaven or hell. The, the concept of additional kingdoms within heaven is very hard for them to grasp. So what does Paul do in also teaching about life after death and some of the things that will be a part of the resurrection Verse 39, he says that all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of man, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of fishes, and another of birds. And then he uses that to kind of teach some of the differences that will exist in the world to come. Verse 40, there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. Apparently Paul had been taught about the different degrees of glory and the different kingdoms that are a part of the resurrection, and it's right there in your Bible. Most people just skip over that, not understanding it because they don't have the context nor the prophets and, and prophecy to further clarify what is meant by the glory of the sun, moon, and stars, 
what is a celestial body, a terrestrial body, and of course a telestial body. Now all of these doctrines are taught clearly and powerfully in the temple. Maybe none so much as baptism for the dead because that's where we practice it. I want to just share with you some of the, the verses associated with baptism for the dead and its significance. The prophet Joseph taught in section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants in verses 15 and 16, he said, And now, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation. For their salvation, speaking of the dead, is necessary and essential to our salvation. As Paul says concerning the fathers, that they without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. He says in verse 18, I might have rendered a plainer translation to this, but it's sufficiently plain to suit my purpose as it stands. It is sufficient to know in this case that the earth will be smitten with a curse unless there is a wielding link of some kind or another between the fathers and the children upon some subject or another. And behold, what is that subject? It is the baptism for the dead. For we without them cannot be made perfect, neither can they without us be made perfect. Neither can they nor we be made perfect without those who have died in the gospel also. For it is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in, that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glory should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. And not only this, but those things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world, but have been kept hid from the wise and the prudent, shall be revealed unto babes and sucklings in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. This is one of the greatest doctrines that was restored in this dispensation, is the doctrine of the baptism for the dead. One of my favorite things is going into the temple, to the baptistry, and seeing a group of young people that are there to do baptisms. When I taught seminary, I would have students that would come to first period dressed up in church clothes because they had just gone that morning to do baptisms for the dead. It was just such an inspirational and refreshing thing to see and experience. And there was just a spirit and a power that was with them. And I want to take a moment just to focus on that doctrine, on the practice of baptism for the dead, and help you to understand the significance that it can have in your life. Is it a little bit of a challenge to go do it? Yes. Is it a little bit of work? Does it require you sometimes maybe to get up early or go on a, a night uh, with a youth group or with family, friends? Yeah. There's probably a lot of other things that you would rather be doing. Playing video games, hanging out with friends, going out to dinner. But the feeling that you will come away with will be one that will permeate with you throughout the rest of the, the day, throughout the rest of the night, probably with throughout the rest of the week. There is a power that is found in the temple. As the prophet Joseph said, for we without them, neither can they without us be made perfect. We need each other. As we do things for them here, they do things for us there. One of my favorite verses that speaks about the power that we have access to by doing temple work and baptisms for the dead came from Elder Richard G. Scott in a conference talk in which he said this, and I want you to pay careful attention to this. He said, Do you young people want a sure way to eliminate the influence of the adversary in your life? 
Did you catch that question, the power of it? As simple and direct as it is, do you young people want a sure way to eliminate the influence of the adversary in your life? As an older person, I would raise my hand high. Yes, I do. Not just the young people. I would love a way to eliminate the influence of the adversary in my life. Well, then he gives the answer. Immerse yourself in searching for your ancestors. Prepare their names for the sacred vicarious ordinances available in the temple. And then go to the temple to stand as proxy for them, to receive the ordinances of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. As you grow older, you will be able to participate in receiving the other ordinances as well. I can think of no greater protection from the influence of the adversary in your life. No greater protection? There's a lot of things we can do to be protected from the adversary. Reading our scriptures is pretty important. Saying our prayers is pretty important. There's taking the sat. There's lots of things we could do. But Elder Scott, in his lifetime of experience, and in his role as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, personally shares that in his opinion, there is no greater protection from the influence of the adversary in our life than doing temple work. He shared a, an example of the change that that can bring in a young person's life when he said, in the Russia Rostova Danu, Danu mission, I believe is how you pronounce it, the youth were invited to each index 2,000 names and then quali- qualify at least one name from their own families for temple ordinances. Those who accomplished this goal were invited to go on a long journey to the new Kiev, Ukraine temple. One young man shared his experience. I was spending a lot of time playing computer games. <laughs> when I started in indexing, I didn't have time to play games anymore. At first I thought, oh no, how can that be? When this project was over, I even lost interest in gaming. Genealogical work is something that we can do here on earth, and it will remain in heaven. Now, I'm not telling you that story, so you need to feel like you should be motivated to stop playing video games, (laughs) or anything else, for that matter, that young people like to do that is good and healthy and entertaining. But I share that story to illustrate the change that can come over you, and the power to bring order into your life by attending the temple and by doing temple work and the power that can be yours to eliminate the influence of Satan in your life. Now, a couple of key questions for you to consider as it relates to temple work and baptism for the dead as Paul is teaching the saints about here. Number one, why do you understand that baptism for the dead is so important to those on this side of the veil as well as those on the other side of the veil? It's be a good discussion to have to make sure you understand everything as it relates to the reason and the purpose for baptism and for baptism of the dead. Another question to go along with that is, what is the symbolism that is found in baptism and baptism for the dead? And why is the baptistry always underground in temples? Now, I can tell you the answer to that, but I want you to search that one out for yourself if you don't know. Have you noticed every time you go to the baptistry in any temple, you will always walk down and it's under the ground. I want you to consider why that is. What's the symbolism of that? Um, How have you felt a greater power to resist and even eliminate the influence of Satan in your life from attending the temple? Have you taken the opportunity to search out any ancestors? If so, what's been your experience with it? What do you think Joseph meant by, for we without them, neither can they without us be made perfect, especially as it relates to the we without them part? I get how they need us. They need us to do their baptisms. But I want you to consider this. If we're helping them there from here, 
What are some things that you think they might be doing there to help us here? It's an interesting question to consider. And lastly, why do you always want to pay attention whenever there is a promise like that from an apostle or a prophet? Now, the last principle to today in this episode, we're going to take a look. It's just a, a quick one. It's in chapter 15, verse 58. I want you to turn there and mark that verse. It reminds me of the youth theme that the church had many years ago. But in verse 58, Paul implores the saints in Corinth to do this. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Elder David A. Bednar gave a great talk titled Steadfast and Immovable, in which he said the word steadfast is used to denote fixed or secure in position, solid and firm in substance, unshaken and resolute. The word immovable is used to indicate that a person or thing is not subject to change, unalterable and firmly fixed. It also suggests the quality of being unyielding and incapable of being diverted from one's purpose. Thus, a person who is steadfast and immovable is solid, firm, resolute, firmly fixed, and incapable of being diverted from a primary purpose or mission. He then goes on to give two great examples from Scripture of what it means to be steadfast and immovable. And one was Captain Moroni, and he's always been one of my heroes. I love Captain Moroni, especially that verse that talks about how if all men had been and would be and ever were like him, that the very powers of hell would be shaken forever. Oh, how I want to be like that. And just so grateful for his example, especially in very difficult times. The others along the same kind of timeline was the 2000 Stripling Warriors. How they also were firm and steadfast in following every order that was given to them. In in choosing to follow and trust the Lord and having faith in him that he would deliver them as was promised to them by their wonderful mothers. In both Captain Moroni and in the Stripling Warriors, there are the characteristics of firmness, of resoluteness, and an absolute focus on compelling and correct purpose. And that is what I know I want for you. I'm sure what your parents want for you, your church leaders, your bishop want for you, what I know that the brethren, our prophet, President Nielsen, wants for you as well, to be steadfast and immovable in following Christ. And I know, young people, one of the places I have learned and develop the ability the most to be steadfast and immovable is the temple. And I just want to reemphasize that to you. I really believe when you walk into those walls, the walls of the temple, that the walls of the temple come out with you. It's like a greater protection, a greater shield surrounds you and helps fortify you against whatever attacks Satan is throwing your way. One of the best things you can do to become steadfast and immovable, to face the fear of the unknown and and the uncertainty and confusion that exists out there, is to participate in temple work, in temple ordinances, and to move forward on the covenant path. Elder John A. Witzo of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles said this. He said, To the man or woman who goes through the temple with open eyes, heeding the symbols and the covenants, and making a steady, continuous effort to understand the full meaning, God speaks his word and revelations come. I believe that the busy person who has his worries and troubles can solve his problems better 
and more quickly in the house of the Lord than anywhere else. If he will leave his problems <clears throat> excuse me, behind and in the temple, work for himself and for his dead, he will confer a mighty blessing upon those who have gone before, and quite as large a blessing will come to him. For at the most unexpected moments, in or out of the temple, will come to him as a revelation, the solution to the problems that vex his life. Maybe that's how we're getting help from the other side. They will come and speak to us. Remember, it was Nephi that taught the angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. So who's to say that when the Holy Ghost isn't speaking to us, he isn't speaking to us by or through someone that is delivering the message to us from the other side. Someone that we have helped ourselves by doing their temple work. Ancestors that have a vested interest in us just as much as we hopefully have for them. Of course, we want to be sealed eternally to all those that we love in our family, all those that we've come close to, those relatives, grandma, grand, grandpas, uh, aunts and uncles, cousins, right, brothers, sisters, mom and dads, those that are a part of our family. But what about those that are still our ancestors a little further along down the line, those we may not know very well? They have the same desires that we do. They want to be sealed to their family, to their wife, to their kids, their husband, their cousins, their aunts and uncles, as we do their work for them. We grant unto them the desire of their hearts. And do you think for a moment that they don't want to return that favor? They don't want to help us as well? I think this is part of what the prophet Joseph said, that we without them cannot be made perfect, neither can they without us. There is work happening on both sides of the veil. And as you do work for them, I think you open yourself up to be able to receive more of the work that they can do for you. Elder Witzow says that that is the gift that comes to those who enter the temple properly because that is the place where revelations may be expected. President Hinckley taught that temple worship helps us avoid destructive addictions as well. And I think this is vitally important for you young people to hear and understand. You are growing up in a world that is just ripe with addiction. It is around every corner and is so accessible, more so than it has ever been before. And President Hinckley said this in one conference talk years ago, Make a habit of going to the house of the Lord. There is no better way to ensure proper living than temple attendance. It will crowd out the evils of pornography, substance abuse, and spiritual atrophy. It will strengthen marriage and family relations. Now my hope is, as we've gone through these particular principles, that you've seen that underlying theme that God is not the author of confusion. And he wants desperately to help bring peace into our lives by following his plan and receiving direction from him. And one of the places we can learn best about that plan, to receive that direction from him and gain access to the power that he has and offers us to face life's challenges, is found in the temple. And do you know why that is? (laughs) Because what you'll really find in the temple is Christ. He is everywhere. Every symbol that is there in the temple can be tied to him. He is the temple. God has set it up that way so that when we go to the temple, it's as if we are coming to Christ. And by coming to Christ, it's as if we are coming home. Because as he taught, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Which is why he invites us to come follow him. And one of the best places and ways we can do that is in the temple. 
couple key questions just to end with that particular principle is, first of all, what does it mean to you to be steadfast? I think, I think that's good for you to define for yourself. Also, what does it mean to you to be immovable? And what do these mean to you when combined together? What does it mean to you personally to be steadfast and immovable, especially as it relates to living the gospel in life? Another question, who is one of your scriptural heroes and how do you see they were steadfast and immovable? I think it's good to make that connection. Another question might be, who has been an example of this to you in your life today? And what can you do to develop this quality more in yourself? What will you do to develop this quality more in yourself? In what ways can Christ empower you to be steadfast and immovable? And what can you do to make the temple more a part of your life in helping you to become steadfast and immovable yourself. Remember, as you go into the temple walls, the walls of the temple come out with you. As always, that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ because He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life. And He invites us all to come follow me. So let's follow Him better this week and become better as we follow Him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens. Mm -hmm.